0: He's going to be much more forthcoming because he's in the patient chair.
1: And and so, used to be. (laughs)
0: I'll probably be asking you questions.
1: (laughs) So, what do you recommend to others embarking on a creative partnership? What selection process um, do you recommend to putting a potential partner through? Like, is there a litmus test here in Hollywood? Um,
2: well, okay. I don't know what the. Oh, I'm sorry I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, no, please, please. No, the, the. I don't think there's a litmus test because I've known I've known people from my dad's my dad's generation down to, you know, my generation and much younger people, and there's all kinds of partnerships. For me, I, I have a litmus test after having a number of failed partnerships, and a couple of really good ones. And that is that the person should have complementary skills, not the same skills. I think there's no point in a partnership where both people can do the exact same thing um, equally well. Um, you might as well be writing a loan and getting more money for it. Because the one thing that I tell students is be prepared to split your paycheck. But on the other hand, they love partnerships in this town. They particularly love male-female partnerships because they think they're getting two sides of the brain, which they may very well be. But yeah, for me, that's my litmus test, if I have one. But it's it's not anything I've really thought about until we started working together seven years ago I had a long time writing partner who was great with with jokes and she was great with because she came out of uh, of stand up so much as she worked in the Kentucky Fried Theater which was the Abrams Zucker Brothers before they made airplane they had a theater out here, and um, she was great joke writer and a pretty good dialogue writer and had been an actress and I was a story guy so that was a complimentary skills, it worked. I I think it's it's kinda like if both people are great at jokes and they're not good at story, I don't think that's such a good partnership. What do you think? <laughs> well, I'd have to say yeah. Okay, good. Um, good. You know, See
0: the, the idea of picking a partner, I mean I've had a lot of writing partners as well and what what I'm stunned at is how long it takes till you figure out if you're in a good partnership or not. You know, there's a, the idea of first impressions. Um, people are on really good behavior when they first meet you. They're very compliant. They're very complimentary. And then eventually, you get to you peel away layers and see who they are, if you can really work with them.
2: Um Except I was so cranky that first night that <laughs> well, I mean, we, we
0: decided to work together the day we met, which was, do you want to tell the story?
2: No, because I so enjoy you telling the story.
0: (laughs) Did you see his nose grow? Um, I was one flight above. He was in his car. Our kids were playing together. They were both in the same eighth grade class having a play date. Jeffrey was sitting in his car, crankily waiting for his son to come down on time because he didn't want to come upstairs and meet yet another parent and have to go through, Hi, my name is, what do you do? Yeah, what do you do? (laughs) And of course, the kid wouldn't come. So he comes up and we went through the, hi, how are you? And when we get into that part, it's, oh, you're an academic, so am I. And then Jeffrey said, you know, I've been a writer about all my life. But now they expect me to do academic writing. Uh, do you do any of that? And I, it's I sort of a long, boring research background. So I say, yeah, I've done a lot of that. And I decided to tell him a story about the first incarnation of Show Me the Funny which started very close to 20 years ago. And we had done something somewhat similar with a group of comedy writers. And then Jeffrey said, well, who, are the, who are the writers you interviewed? And as I started to name each writer, Jeffrey's eyes started going like this. And he said, every writer you named was at my house playing poker with my dad when I was growing up. And then he literally jumped off the couch and said, let's do the project. So it all happened within that first night.
1: So the people that you've talked to, who've come to you and maybe had questions about their own partnerships, is it that one of the other side of the partnership is not following through on details? Maybe they're a little flaky? Is it an overpowering of egos? A little bit of both? All you know, of,
0: it all could of be that. so yeah. many things that could make okay. a partnership not work. Yeah. It's kind of like friendships. And relationships, it's like if you said to somebody, "Well, do you find the relationships don't work because people butter their toast too loudly and scrape the?" You know, it could be. It could be just about anything.
2: I do know a partnership that broke up because the one guy would sit and they'd always work at his partner's house, and he was picking a picking apart fabric. He was so nervous that he was. Yeah he and the wife had just recovered the sofa (laughs) and he was on I mean I'm sure there were other reasons but that was part of it you know that they just got on each other's nerves also I think that I think that you have to really have a mutual respect I I, what I find with particularly with young writers is that one person will let the other person do 95% of the work and then want 50% of the credit and um, that's not going to work. That's kind of what you were saying. That's not going to work. You know, um, I expect that in 20-year-olds. But by the time you're 30, you better know that you're going to have to put... And then I also think you have to sit down and decide. Sometimes we've never had to actually do this. Decide who's going to do what. It just sort of comes naturally. Like I, For example, with, with the interviews, I lo- I don't know why this is such a strange thing. Peter absolutely hates transcribing. And in the first book, we 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 hired people to do the transcribing. But for some reason, I said, well, I'll, he's doing so much. I'll do the transcribing. I kind of like it. I can kind of edit as I do the transcribing. So it takes a little piece out of the process. So we don't have to. So as I've gone along, I've kind of taken that on and he takes on other things. But we don't, I don't recall having major discussions about it. or yeah. anything. it kind of what comes naturally to each of us.
0: We have a pretty good ebb and flow in terms of who's good at what and likes to do what.
2: I try to get him to do more, but it doesn't, you know, and sometimes it works, you know. He's
0: basically not strong enough. <laughs> we arm wrestle to decide and the scorpions are really <laughs> exciting.
2: Karen laughed. I think we're doing okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Either that or she's enormously (laughs) polite. I'm going for the polite hypothesis.
1: You mentioned in the book, Show Me the Funny, that you were pleased with many of the writers with whom you interviewed because you felt that they stopped with their typical PR pitch and you got them to really let down their guard. And and some of them spent like three, four hours with you.
2: Oh, yeah.
0: Well, you know, again, when we first started talking about interviewing writers that... The interview is such a difficult way to get things out of people because they, it's very easy to romanticize yourself when you've achieved a lot and talk about the way you wish you worked or think you might have worked. Um, and we wanted to know how they worked. So by doing this different format, having a process-based interview where we said, work, we'll watch. Um, A lot of the writers commented themselves on how different this interview felt. And one of the things that we found interesting was almost everyone at some point talked about being anxious. I mean, these are really top professional writers, none of them had any difficulty doing it. But they all said, you know, I'm going to come up with something here and then it's going to be compared to all my top level peers and I want it to look good, I want to feel good about what I did. And it was—we were stunned at how good they were. I mean, every one of them was just such a good pro, and they just stuff issued forth. And when we would stop and ask them questions or say, "Well, could you also do this? Could you also do that?" Sure, they just pivot on a dime and just go somewhere else.
2: I, I really think, other than the post-game questions, uh, you know, if we had another word other than interview. They're almost not, they're really not interviews. We just don't have another word for it.
0: They were like it. voyeurisms for us. We just watched them. I mean,
2: work. you know, sometimes we got involved, sometimes we didn't. When there were partnerships, when we interviewed partnerships, we almost never said anything. We maybe prompted, but I think the miracle of this book is that it disproves this idea that so many of the so called screenwriting gurus like McKee and Truby and these guys come up with if there's only, huh? Sid Field. Uh, well, Sid is kind of back in the 80s, but uh, and the irony of Sid Field is that he never wrote a narrative script. He was a documentary filmmaker, so, and the processes are reversed in that. But they always say there's one way to do it, and of course there's, this book proves that there's 25 ways at least, and that's pretty cool. And to take, to take the same exact premise, which is generic, really, and to make 25 different stories out of it was just so cool to be a part of.
0: One, one of the things that's been really nice is that um, we've gotten a lot of writing professors around the country to use the book with their students. And the thing they say they really like is again, watching these people create, and more than that, a lot of them narrate as they create. So they're literally saying, okay, I need to heighten the conflict here, so what I'm going to do is, um, you know, yes, it's a mother and a daughter, yes, they love each other, but I'm going to make them more competitive, because that's going to do it. Or I'm going to make one so stuck with her tastes, and this one so stuck with her tastes, and both feel so sure they're right, that so they would tell us what they were doing as they did it. And so these kids are finding it great, because... These people are saying, okay, here are the problems you run into, here are some ways to possibly fix it, and you're watching these people do it. It's miraculous.
1: Any other tips for putting your quote-unquote subject, for lack of a better word, at ease? Was there any self-disclosure? I know in, in therapy sometimes they do that. Um,
0: you know, what Jeffrey was saying before, um, the, we had some movie writers and some TV writers, and the TV writers are pretty much used to working in a writer's room. And so one of the things that we try to do is create that feeling as much as possible. So There were cases where um, somebody would get kind of pensive and we think, well, let's make a suggestion and see what they would do with it. Let's ask them a question to see if it would jog something. So it was kind of cool that we got to interact and, and keep them comfortable with always something going. There were never any dead spots. And these people are, have you ever seen those kids' toys that you wind them up and they bounce into the wall and then they turn direction and go somewhere else? They hit a you know, furniture leg, they go some. They, they were like that. It's like sometimes they just needed the smallest question and all of a sudden, boom, they mm. they come off again. It was, yes. it was remarkable to see.
1: Like the Schwartzes. I enjoyed listening to yeah. Cousin Bob or Uncle Bob, and we yeah. just saw that they really went there. All of a sudden, it was almost like about right.
2: the camera. Yeah, or exactly. And yeah. and also, I think like Hollywood history came out of that interview that probably wouldn't have come out of a normal interview, because what made uh, you know, you're looking at really edited down interviews. Because the, as you said, they went on three hours, and what you're looking at is about forty minutes of a three hour yeah. interview. Because mm, the they won't let us
0: put the dirty stories in.
2: Yeah. But that story about Bob Hope and Jack Benny and, and how after the war he decided he didn't want to, Sherwood didn't want to write jokes anymore, I mean, I don't believe that any of that would have come out in a regular interview because we might not have asked the question, but something he said about his history made him think of Bob Hope and about Jack, not Jack Benny, it was George Burns.
0: Well, quite a few of the writers made that comment that they said, you know, we get interviewed a lot, but... We're telling stories we normally don't tell because of the nature of the interview mm-hmm. and the place where it went. So that was kind of fascinating for us. It was in this room. Oh, wow. Um, when I first moved in here, uh, I had a roommate, my friend Tina, who was a regular on the Dick Van Dyke variety show, which is where Andy Coffin broke in. Okay. So they were sort of friends, so she brought him over here one night. And he and I spent two hours in this room having an argument, an argument that lasted two hours. (laughs) You know, he was very much into wrestling Mm -hmm. and was trying to convince me as a psychologist that the world was really like wrestling with the guys that, you know, basically white hats and black hats, the good guys and bad guys. And I was explaining to him he was frightfully naive and that it was much more like roller derby because there were much more characters involved. And for two hours, we argued about that.
1: Really? Right in this room?
0: In this very room that you're in. I don't know if you could feel the spirit.
1: It jogged my memory because before you even... You discussed Taxi in one of your interviews, but even before that, I just thought back to being a kid and what was my favorite, and it was the two Christopher Lloyd and Andy Kaufman.
0: Well, it and was it, interesting that a, a, a good spirit. friend of mine that Jeffrey knows also mm-hmm. was also regular on that show and was at his audition. Oh, wow. and said he did his his bits and then he picked up a copy of The Great Gatsby. Are you familiar with The Great Gatsby? <laughs> he
2: his knows his that grade. that was my undergraduate thesis, oh, is my I favorite, see. Book. favorite book.
0: So he picked up mm-hmm. a copy of The Great Gatsby and he started reading it. Not like a funny reading, not like a serious, just reading it. the way. Mm-hmm. If I said, hey, read this aloud right. and everybody was kind of staring at each other and five minutes goes by and that's a long time to be sitting there watching a guy who's supposed to be auditioning, reading a book mm-hmm. and they're staring at him like this guy's from Mars. This is so Flag. weird. 10 minutes goes by and somebody starts to kind of giggle a little bit. And within like 12 minutes, everybody's rolling on the floor. People like holding their chests cause it hurts so much and laughing so hard. And all he did was kept reading.
2: Yeah, it's really tragic cause he was so young and he was so talented. I actually went to uh, grammar school with his brother and uh, um, I I I think I must have met Andy was a little kid you know mm-hmm. but um, I was when man and the moon came out when the Jim Carrey movie came out um, I remember they used to do this thing called e e Hollywood true stories Hollywood. I don't know if they still do them yeah. and I would I have to be channel surfing and there was this kid Mike Cal- Michael Kaufman who you know sometimes people's faces really st- there you still see the child face right
1: right
2: it was just weird cuz it all came back you know from well, it's like sixth grade or 7th grade we were in together wow then they moved to great neck there was in manhattan and they moved out to great neck came from a, like a middle class jewish family yeah. it was they were not poor they were not you know he was and apparently everybody i know who worked with him including um Heidi Perlman, who's in the book, right, right, who's right. a good friend of mine. Yeah. Um, he was just a mensch. He was just a very sweet human being mm-hmm. who could get away with the Tony Clifton stuff that he did because he was such a good guy. And
0: well, was, My friend told and, me a great story that he'd become pretty good friends with him. And one day Andy Kaufman calls him up and said, I got this great new character, Tony Clifton. And he's this... Insult guy, and he's a terrible singer. And he's just nasty, and everybody's gonna hate him. It's gonna be so funny <laughs> And then years later they Happened on each other and said "Are you still doing the Tony Clifton character and he said what are you talking about? I'm not Tony Clifton He said that's a totally separate guy <laughs> He said Andy you told me when you made the character up you called me and told me about him you No, 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 he's a different person and he denied that it was him.
2: After he died, I can't think of the guy's name, but the guy that Paul Giamatti plays in the movie Bob w- went and did the character yeah. in tribute to him for a while. Yeah. Oh, wow.
1: Anyways, I met
2: talk. Orson once.
1: Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah,
2: I met him at my friend Ted's house. He could barely get in the door. It was about two years before he died. Very, very. He was holding court. I shouldn't say I really met him because I, I think I, I was so frightened, you know, because I hold him in such high regard that. Oh, uh-huh.
0: uh, now, this and, is weird. Tina, the the one I was telling you about who lived here, was his assistant towards the end of his life when he was doing his mentalist act. Oh. Wow. Did you know he had a, an act? Oh, sure. He, he was.
2: Yeah. Tina a magician was just, all his life. Yeah. Yeah. But he
0: would. She would go out in the audience as a shill and say, you know. Uh, what does this person have in his pocket right he's got a wallet and a
2: comb wow how did you think Think about orson wells it's so tragic is to have your greatest success when you're 24 years old and then you know you live into your 70s and you You, never have that again
0: that's why we're glad we haven't peaked yet
2: (laughs) um i had a, a very close friend of my dad's an actor named elliot reed who you can look up he was in everything He's in his 90s now. But Elliot was one of the Mercury Players. He lied to Orson Welles when he was 18, told him he was 21, got into the Mercury Players on the radio. And then Orson had all these movies that he didn't complete. And then he would sleep with some countess and she would give him the completion funds and he would go and he'd call up Ted and all of these other guys that he worked with And they'd go out to Palm Springs and they'd shoot until he ran out of money again. So there's like, as Peter Bogdanovich was talking about, there were like like eight or nine uncompleted uh, Orson Welles films that are out there. That makes such a
0: big deal about Schubert? One symphony.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I, I learned all this late.
1: Growing up, my favorite uh, characters were on Taxi. Mm -hmm. Jim Ignatowski, played by Christopher Lloyd, and uh, Latka Gravis, played by Andy Kaufman. Back then, uh, comedy seemed so much more observational, so much more simpler. It Mm -hmm. seems like now everything's snarkier and and meaner in my end. I
2: I agree with that. Um, Taxi was pretty edgy for its day. Um, And... Um, I talked to Norman Lear about this not long ago. He loved um, Everybody Loves Raymond because it was an observational show. But you take something like Modern Family, it is kind of, well, the first season was great. I think it's kind of gotten stupid now. It's kind of... Like, who cares? I mean, the I think the thing you're pointing out, I could be wrong, and I don't mean to read your mind, after all, I'm not Orson Welles, but... but um, <laughs> and I'm not <I>, Tina. <laughs> but um, what, what I think has happened is that the networks, not so much the networks, but Cable saying, don't bring us anything that isn't edgy, and when you get so edgy, I don't even know what that means, but when you go there, you lose the characters. The great thing about Taxi was... That the characters were the most important thing, the conflicts were so human and 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 you cared about all of those people. you didn't cared about Louie and Louie was a jerk, and you cared about him,
0: but they showed his vulnerable side a lot,
2: yeah, and I don't think that's why Raymond was such a great show because they did character. It was all about the characters. It was all about the conflict within the family. It wasn't they didn't try to be edgy. I think they did maybe three edgy episodes. And and you know, we don't even I mean, again, it's like we asked all of the people in the book what comes first? Character. What's the most important thing? Character or story? And they all said conflict. And so that's what I think. That's what Taxi had, but it had, but you—they were three-dimensional people. Yeah, you know, I mean it was broad, but they were three-dimensional.
1: Well, when you spoke to Leonard Stern, he said that uh, it's much harder to write a comedy of love and caring than it is of neg- negativity. Well, and but, I
0: mean, again, it was interesting because he he started that by saying, "I agree that conflict is the basis of all humor." But conflict doesn't have to be hostile. And that's when he came out and said, I like all of my hostility, I mean all my conflict, to come out of love. And you know, Jeffrey and I talk about this a lot when we, we give talks, that um, the standard thing, there are... We learned uh, from a lot of these writers, there's, um, there's a bag of tricks that all comedy writers have So when you need a laugh, there are things like the turnaround joke and things that you just, here's the thing, it'll get you a laugh if you're stuck. And I remember one of them saying to me, the telephone, having the telephone ring at an inopportune time will always get you a laugh. If you have a really tense situation and the phone rings, that'll get you a laugh. If you want to make it a bigger laugh, Who's calling at the worst time? Your mother. Why is that funny? Because your mother has a whole bunch of ideas of how you should be living your life, which are diametrically opposed to yours. You love each other, and you can't, you know, what do you mean you're a writer? You should have gone to pharmacy school, didn't I tell you? Think what you'd be making now if you were working, you know, does it? There's a new Rite Aid right down the street from us, you could have... So again, it's it's that sort of thing that it... Two people... I Love Lucy, almost every show, was people who love each other in conflict. And each one either knows better or will show somebody or... But it was never like, I'm gonna get you, I'm gonna smash your face with a hammer, kind of, of hostility. It was always conflict of good intentions And my good intentions are better than your good intentions. Right. Right.
1: So we're both huge fans of the Mark Maron uh, WTF podcast. Oh, yeah. And uh, part of the beauty of what Mark does is that he seems to admit very dark things about himself. (laughs) And, and, you know, even his jealousies toward other comics or actors, resentments, addictions, etc. Do you think a good comic should go into therapy? in order to know sort of the things about themselves that are sort of the blind spots a lot of people don't want to admit. I
0: personally think that their stand-up is their therapy. (laughs) That, you know, stand-ups basically rant. They talk about what's making them crazy. Hmm. And it's a very nice way to get at those things that... You know, very few stand-ups are saying things like, oh, I just have my kitchen remodeled, it's so beautiful now. I just like to stand there, not uh, the double doors for the refrigerator. Oh, my goodness. You know, that's not going to happen. And you say, the freaking contractor, do you know? you know? So, it. I mean, I've spoken to a lot of them that say it really is, That's that's how I deal with it.
1: So should someone... So let's suppose therapy isn't working for them. Some people, it works for, they, they enjoy it. They have a very great relationship with their therapist and others. Do you think they need that audience validation? And that could be another way to work through things?
0: You're asking a bunch of very difficult questions. Um, the therapy part, of course, uh, considering that I do moonlight as a uh, clinical psychologist, of course, I think everybody should be in therapy. Um, but for stand-ups, um, you know, stand-up being a stand-up has two different facets. There's the performance part of it, and there's the the writing part of it. And it's really the writing part that you're getting into. And I what I can do is tell you a parallel story of a a friend of mine who sat in that very chair. And was writing a screenplay and said, I'm just stuck. I just, I ripped myself into a corner I can't seem to get out of. And I sat down with him and I said, let's play a little bit. And you be your main character. And let's do a psych history. And I took a very detailed psych history. And by the time he left, he said, no matter what happens to this character, I know how he'll react no matter what situation he's into i know how he'll view it and found it enormously helpful
1: and you also had a, a oh you said a one time stint at the comedy store oh, that you were yeah that and was by your the one way, own...
2: i agree everyone should be in therapy and it's always the people who don't go who need to go, who make life miserable for the rest of us. That's my non-professional <laughs> un, uh, opinion. I, I'm a complete believer in... Th- I think therapy is really helpful for ge- creative people. And I, I, don't. I think it's a superstition to believe that if you talk about your demons, that you will... I think it's a defense mechanism about having to deal with them. Because I've never met a creative person who who went to therapy and was harmed by it unless they had like, you know, a charlatan or, you know, like somebody who like the guy, you know, the famous Beach Boys story about Brian Wilson having this guy, Gene Landry, who kind of took over his life. That's that's a little different. Um, that can happen, I guess, but it's I don't think it's that common. Um, you would have to say if it's common No, very uncommon. Yeah. Um, but, um. I just like to take over the financial part of their life. I, I, um. I'm gonna just pretend you didn't say that. Um, I'll say it louder. <laughs> um. I had, again, my longtime writing partner who, um, came out of stand up and sketch comedy uh, talked me into doing it one night at an open mic at the comedy store. And I froze. I just, just. You know, we planned it out. We wrote it out. It was great. And I kept saying to her all the way through, I'm not going to be able to, ah, you'll be fine. I'll feed you the lines. You're funny. I said, I'm great in a living room, and I'm okay on the page. But I can't, I, I got up there, and I, it was that, cliched thing of looking out and seeing a sea of faces and it was like the flop set scene, scene the flop sweat scene from broadcast news you know when Albert Brooks is just sweating and sweating and sweating and he can't stop sweating that was me and I just never did it again but my daughter does it which is really interesting and she's very good in fact next exact uh, what's today Wednesday Saturday night she's going to the comedy store and doing the third or fourth time she's done it but she's had some training, and she loves performing. And the thing is, is like I stopped performing in eleventh grade when I went up in my lines in a, in a play and hit my forehead, and the drama teacher said, "Do it again tomorrow night," and that was the last time. <laughs> I'm not an actor. I have no. My wife's an actress, a wonderful actress, and that's uh, about as close as I get to acting.
1: So stand-up comedy, is it a metaphor for something in our lives? Is it? I,
2: I just think it's
0: another form of entertainment. Yeah. And it's it's very, very direct. It's right. Here's the stuff that makes me crazy. I want to talk to somebody about it.
2: There's You love stand-up. There's a documentary that HBO did a couple of years ago about this little boom that happened in the 80s in Boston in stand-up that um, Dennis Leary... All these, uh, Stephen, Stephen, Wright. Stephen Wright, all these people came out of Boston. You should try to get that and watch it. I bet it's on Netflix. Um, I can't think of the name of it. It has but Boston in the title. I don't remember the name of it, but it's really good. And it was on HBO a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, we go through these periods where stand-up is, like, the thing. And then it sort of takes a backseat for a while. But I think it's a form of entertainment that will always be there, you know?
0: There's, there's a real problem about stand-up right now because of TV, and especially the internet, that there were people who would live on their 15 minutes and go from town to town to do it. Now you go on TV and you do your 15 minutes and everybody hears it and you've got to have something new or you put it on YouTube and there you go. So... You're constantly now having to write, plus everybody has exposure to your stuff, and you know there are just so many things that you can come up with about you know ah oh, Starbucks. I mean, geez, you know this this and this chinos, and you know it's got fluffy stuff. And, you know, how many things can you do about that? And so many people are doing it, so there's a there's a real problem now with coming up with interesting new material that different observations on on life that other people don't have because there's so, so, so much. It's so dense out
2: there. It's interesting, (laughs) Peter showed me uh, uh, some kid who was on, uh, I guess he has his YouTube channel or something. He made a video. He makes a series of short films and the one I saw was, he was dressed up as a woman and He was doing what is really a very old-fashioned, he was doing an update of a very old-fashioned burlesque sketch where, you know, guys dressed up as women and did, like, little shtick. And he got some kind of reality TV show deal or something. And I told my students that he had, like, 800,000
0: hits. No, 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 he had, like, 7 million hits. okay. And they said, that's not that big a number.
2: It, compared to what some people get, there's a blogger who got a TV series. Uh, but but well, there's,
0: I, there's a new phrase yeah. now that they're using called vlogging. Maybe you're familiar with.
2: Yeah. It. But what I find really fascinating about this is that people, young people, and I mean like twenty year olds, look at this and think it's new, when in fact. I think one of my missions as a teacher is to give them a frame of reference, then they'll make better product. You know, if you know what's come before you're you're gonna build on it rather than think you've created and and so I we watched this thing as a sort of an object lesson and I said, This goes back to vaudeville, to the British music halls, to to burlesque. This is not new, this is a new take on that. I don't know whether this kid actually my bet is he had not he just thinks he's really funny and it's kind of it you know but it's really stupid and I mean it's really stupid I've seen some good bloggers and you know good sketches Um, Margaret Cho took a guy on the road that she and I saw I saw him open for her. a guy who did this thing um, he dressed up as a girl this is like four or five years ago he had a viral a video that went viral it was like, let me wear that sweater. And, and she took him on the road to help his career. And yeah, I don't know where he is now, but he had this song. Everybody in the audience, I mean, my wife and I were the oldest people in the audience, and everybody was singing the lyrics to this song, and they, all on YouTube. So the world has changed. But I would just like people to know the references they're making, whether they realize it or not. So that they can do something really original, because I assure you that—and this isn't comedy, guys—but Sorkin and and Alan Ball and you know Elaine May and all these people—they know their history. Sherwood Schwartz knew his history. Leonard Stern knew his history, and and I think Woody Allen—you can be sure—Woody Allen knows oh, yeah. the history. Albert Brooks. And um, also, we see constantly
0: we're watching sitcoms, these comedy writers have an incredible backlog of, you know, if you ask a musician, um, you know, every, every jazz musician can tell you the chords to all the standards, and all the classical musicians can play, depending on the kind of music they play, whether it's Bach or Mozart, or, and these writers know all the old jokes. Mm. And they have an incredible so backlog. They, they know everything. And we, Jeffrey and I always marvel at how they take classic old jokes and then update them. Tell, tell them about the Jack Benny story.
2: Oh, well, that is a great story. Um, the famous radio joke, the Jack Benny radio joke from the 40s, is he's in an alley, he's being mugged. And it's the longest silence in radio history to this day. Nobody topped it, and the and the the, the robber says, um, "Your money or your life." And there's this long, long pause, and the and the guy says again, "I said your money or your life." And another even longer pause, and Jack Benny says, "I'm thinking, I'm thinking." Well, Roseanne was doing a show. Why don't you tell that part of the story?
0: Um, we interviewed I love Bob Meyer, who was the, the showrunner for Roseanne, and. They used that joke. What they did was they had Roseanne pregnant with her third child on the show, and she was taking a Lamaze class. And they said, do I really want to go through natural childbirth a third time? It was so painful. So she tells her uh, her doctor, um, maybe let's try some painkillers this time. So he says to her, you know, with your weight, you could endanger your health or the child, the child's health. What would you like to do?
2: <laughs>
0: I said, "Well, I'm thinking." And again, very funny joke. But if you knew your history, you know where it came from. Well, later, I saw the same joke in Big Bang Theory. So again, it's it's nice to know that all this material is out there, waiting to be updated, waiting to be. I mean, the 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 vlogger that. Uh, that Jeffrey was talking about was basically doing Milton Berle, right. who was doing burlesque.
2: Right, who, which is and, what he came out of, Milton Berle, so. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Interesting. So um, again, it's, it's knowing your history. It's, um, uh, one of the things that makes uh, Jeffrey really angry is when kids are presenting screenplays and they have no understanding of the history of the genre that they're doing.
2: Well, it's that they'll come in with an idea that they think is totally and completely original, and then someone else in the class it always pleases me when someone else in the class rather than me having to be the bad guy, says, "Oh, you know, that's like that movie in the nineteen fifties blah 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 you know not that you couldn't do a new spin on it, but you should know it sure. you know it's it's kind of i uh, to me it's akin to being a primitive artist, a primitive yes, it's beautiful, but the skills are limited, whereas you know if you've studied art history." even a little bit, you have a sense of what, you know, what are different kinds of brushstrokes? Why, why do artists paint in different schools different ways? And I think, how can you be hurt by having knowledge? That's, well, I mean, yeah. in any
0: field, there was a famous story that uh, George Martin, the producer for the Beatles, was doing a session with them, and they were doing She Loves You. And at the end, they said, George invented a new chord. And George Martin laughed and said, yes, an A6. It was a sixth chord. It was like a standard chord that yeah. every, every good jazz musician knows and yeah. every good classical musician knows. And he figured it out, and he invented a new chord that the whole world who was educated knew.
2: You know that Paul's dad was in the British music halls, yeah. So Paul was second generation, and... Uh, so probably grew up with some of that. Just like um, Billy Crystal's parents were in the business, Jerry Lewis's parents were in the business. Albert Brooks's dad was a guy named well, his I don't know his real name was Einstein because that is Albert Brooks's real name would be Albert Einstein, but his his showbiz name was Park Your Carcass. So <laughs> and his brother is the guy you ever seen Curb Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh, Karen, we have to work on you. <laughs> we have to get her to watch some good. Te- That's a great show, by the way. I hear it is. I know. Well, his brother is a regular on it. There's a guy named but, Bob Einstein. But
0: he also he also had another bit that he did, Bob
2: Einstein. Oh, he Dave, played a kind of Dave the Daredevil. Yeah, the he team was team. sort of doing that real. He was doing a spin on a takeoff on the real guy. That like even canyons and. Yeah, I remember. He had a show, uh, very early in Showtime's history, he had a Showtime series. Uh-huh. Super, Dave Osmond, Super Dave Osborne. Super Dave Osborne. I
0: remember.
2: Anyway, your turn.
1: All of the writers that you interviewed, it seemed, were, were older in age, and I know that Hollywood places such an emphasis on youth.
0: and oh, yeah. And, and... A, a number of the writers in the book talked about ageism.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, we were surprised. Peter Casey, who's 50, and, yeah. Wings and Fraser, he co-created those shows. He said, I couldn't get a show on now. Not at 50. Really? To hear somebody with those credits saying you couldn't get a show on, that's pretty startling.
1: So what is the logic behind that? Because you oh. think that we enjoy speaking to people that are, just have more experience. Why wouldn't Hollywood um, think the same
2: thing? Well, there, 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 there is a little bit of mythology around this. Yes, they want younger writers, but they will never let someone in their mid 20s run a show um, i'd say the the age of people running shows now goes anywhere from like 35 up to 55 but
0: there's also a mythology yeah. about we interviewed Ed Dechter, the uh, fellow wrote uh, the something about Mary yeah. and he was he was talking a lot about demographics and saying that there there are four boxes and you've got Pre-teens, teens, young adults, and adults, and the you always want to go after as many boxes as you can. He gave an example. He said Shrek. And he's talking about perfect, movies more yeah, than. But teens. he said that was a perfect movie because it hit everybody. People have this idea that young people spend the most money, and so that's the market you always want to go after, mm. which certainly doesn't seem to make as much sense to me in Hollywood. No, so I mean, they, it's, it's they don't all have these the disposable myths. income and all that right. stuff. But there's this idea that young people watch more, they go out to movies more, they watch TV more. So if you're not going after that market, then you know a love story with two people in their fifties is not going to sell and have the same freshness as two people that are coming of age or in their early twenties.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's amazing to me. I know it's not a comedy, although it does have wonderfully comedic. Moments, and it's amazing to me that Hitchcock is with Helen Mirren and Anthony Hopkins is doing as well as it is because there's really no Scarlett Johansson's in it, but it's a relatively small part, and and uh, Jessica Beale's in it, it's also a small part. It's being looked at almost as a documentary, but it's a great I thought it was wonderful. It's a great romance between a husband and a wife, and really how she did help form his career. And, and actually was his boss at one time when they were first together and i think it's great and i i wish you know and there was a period of time in hollywood where most of the stars most of the people working had experience and were i mean if you think about the great stars of the 40s and 50s and th- even the 30s they were not kids um and but just to go back to the writing thing for, I don't believe staffs are full of people in their early 20s. It takes about five years to break in. I have a student who's 26. She's on her first show. She's certainly not running it. The two guys who are the show runners are in their late 40s, early 50s. Uh, they've had a few bombs and a few successes. So I don't, and the answer to why, I think that sometimes they've, the the networks think that young people have their finger on a pulse that yeah but they don't have the experience or the craft so it's the only business I know of where like if you were going to if you were up for murder and you were going to a lawyer who would you go to? the guy who'd been practicing criminal law for years and years and years and knew everybody in the industry or would you go to some guy just out of law school I don't think you would do, So it's kind of a weird dynamic and it makes no logical sense, but it's what they do. But get.
0: using that analogy, that analogy would be, yeah, but we've got this hot new lawyer with incredible new vision and new techniques that has great ways to get people <laughs> off that these old codgers don't get. So yeah. Yeah, that's the way they're selling it. He'll
1: put, you know, testimony on
2: YouTube, really. Exactly. So, so far, it hasn't... social media to get you on. I haven't seen, well, most of the showrunners I know of, drama and comedy are older I mean you know they're not kids so and and the people who are making decisions at the networks and at the real decision makers the people who can green light things are still older people they're not they'll never let a 25 year old decide how to run a network I mean I just don't think that's ever gonna happen um the business side's always gonna be you know like banker age you know so.
1: So, knowing that people may have an expiration date, as, as cold as that sounds,
2: mm-hmm.
1: how should someone plan around that, the, who's still very talented, what else can they envision for themselves if they feel like, you know what, I'm going to be booted out of the Hollywood system?
2: Well, I can tell you what I know. I wish it were that clean that you knew when you were going to be booted out. It's usually a slow, it's kind of like the... They put leeches on you and bleed you out slowly, you know. <laughs> um, uh, most of the people I know, and I know, like a big, they either change careers, so that my former writing partner is an associate director, and um, she's made a very good career for herself. She stopped writing about 10 years ago. I mean, she's still writing, but she's not writing television and she's on Big Bang and before that she was on Will and Grace she does pilot she's always working and the another thing that i've i've noticed is that writers after a certain age they become novelists or they become playwrights or they become they just do other kinds of writing you know and then ironically some of them end up selling their novels to the very system that was done with them you know I, I think the i think the rule is there are no rules i don't think it's like banking or law or medicine i think for every rule i mean peter's writing a script with an old friend right now which i think even though it'll be a tough sell i think it will get made and i and and that's kind of ironic because i mean they're all farts um you know you the diet, old it's for the
0: it. diet, a lot of legumes.
2: You eat those, right?
0: I do. <laughs> anyway, we had a number of writers uh, in the book who said, we won't write anything now if we can't get director or producer credit, because we just don't want people messing with our stuff. And then Charlie Peters had that great quote, he said, I'm just so tired of pitching to embryos.
2: <laughs> That's what I wanted to title his chapter. He also told a great story about how much the business has changed, and about eight years ago he went to a meeting he got a job and he went to a meeting and This is a guy who's written everything and he went to a meeting and they were just going to start talking about the story. They weren't anywhere near, even developing a script and the producer said, "What do you think it's going to be like opening weekend he you, you know and Charlie said, "I don't know 60 65 and rainy huh? you know they hadn't even just the guy wanted to talk about the poster and they hadn't even written the movie yet you know. but you know it's,
0: it's interesting when we when we interviewed Sherwood Schwartz the way he began his interview was saying when we were in our day somebody would come in and they they'd show me a script and I'd say I just saw something like that on my three sons a couple of weeks ago and I'd throw them out He says, now people won't accept anything unless it's been done somewhere else to show that it works. He says, you know, my day was creativity and you had to be new and fresh. Says now everybody wants to be safe. That's, that's so true. And it's, it's interesting a slight change of genres, but I, um, I went to a taping of, of a show. Some, some friends of friends had bought some rehearsal studios in Burbank and they were having big-name groups come in, do a rehearsal in front of a live audience, and then sit and take questions from them. And so we got to see one with Manhattan Transfer, who I love. And they were talking about the difference in the business and saying, when we first started in record companies, you had A&R people who were artists. And so you had artists helping artists get their product done. He says, now it's all accountants. And he says, when we present a project, the word they use is, what kind of tonnage will it do? And they, and they said that word with as much of an air of repugnance as you could do, um, saying they don't care what we put out if it's going to sell a lot. And certainly that's even truer in, in movies and TV. It's sort of a sad commentary that, you know, they are... There were days, you know, when your dad was around before, where producers had a sense of, of art and they were looking for good products. And now it's corporations who have, again, the A-word, teams oh. of them. And it's sort of sad that, that bean counters should should determine what's art. And one of, one of the things that we're finding so interesting is like the stuff that you folks are doing. Because... Jeffrey and I gave a talk at a writer's conference down in San Diego. And there was a fellow there from a company named Smashwords. And what he does is he has a website for people who want to do electronic book publishing. And he will help them with the formatting and give them templates and stuff so they can get it, anybody can get out there. And the point he was saying was, until a few years ago, It was a small group of editors and publishers and literary agents who determined what the world would read. They were the gatekeepers, would your book get published or wouldn't it? And he says, that's changed now. And now anybody can publish a book electronically, get it up on iTunes, get it up on Amazon, they're out there. The same thing has happened with the music industry. You know, there are no more record stores, that's a thing of the past, and you used to have to get a record company to get behind you to afford studio time to go in and make records. Now you've two thousand dollars you can put out a state-of-the-art quality stuff in your own studio. And what we're seeing more and more now is people now um, you know when you wanted to do a movie just to rent the equipment and and put it onto film priced you out of the business. Now you can you can use Avid, you can use Final Cut Pro, uh, Premiere, and you can do your own feature editing. You can, you can do it on video, you can distribute it. All the way down to people doing webisodes, and, and having vlogs, and doing all this stuff. So that now, you don't have to have these big companies, which means they're sort of losing their stranglehold a bit. I mean, the only thing that sort of keeps the, the movie industry going is the distribution channels. So it's, it's all changing very, very quickly and it's kind of fun and it's, it's the interesting thing that technology is doing.
2: Yeah. You
0: know, I, funny story apropos of nothing. Um, I had a friend years ago who taught in a music department and she had a, a doc in, in piano performance And just to make small talk, I asked her if she had seen this new sequencing program. Do you know what music sequencing software is? Um, Basically, you can take a computer, put in notes from a synthesizer, assign the sounds you want to them, and I could sit down and, and recreate a Beethoven symphony on it. And she looked at me very huffily and said, that's putting musicians out of work. And then later I saw her going in to teach a class wheeling in a phonograph. And I thought, how funny that she doesn't realize historically that that's the thing that killed live music. That there was a time, you know, when people write music now, um, they they get a publishing deal with a record company, but publishing used to mean literally publishing sheet music to put on your piano and play because real people who wanted music in their houses, how to play music, till the phonograph. And she so looks at this new technology and doesn't realize this old technology was there doing that. So it's interesting. Yeah. Because again, yeah. it was it was movie theaters and then TV and now computers. Oh. And all these avenues are opening up for young yeah. filmmakers, young writers, young directors,
2: cinematographers. That's what you guys are doing. It's yeah. basically you're The Wild Frontier. I will say the one place where they seem to fail at that and they should have is when they tried a couple of years ago to replace live music and Broadway musicals because there's nothing like sitting down and for what they charge, especially because there's, you know, like um, Book of Mormon was like $225 a ticket for a lousy seat. You know, and to get there to pay all that money and then they're gonna can they're gonna bring in canned music. So they luckily the unions stood up and so they made some kind of deal where they have fewer musicians, but I still think there's nothing like live music, you know, it's great, it's great, you know. So, but again,
0: you know, in terms of opportunities, it's like you know, you said you started out doing radio stuff. You used to have to get on a radio station and a very limited number of slots, and you had to jump through hoops, and you had no control. And
1: it's very empowering.
0: Yeah. And now with video, same thing. You used to yeah. have to be able to get on a network. And...
1: Right. You mentioned uh, in the book that professional writers know how to take a story idea and make it commercial. So how does an amateur writer develop this skill? You
0: know, several of the writers said, you know, I had no formal training in writing. I just lock myself in the room and I watch sitcoms and I'm sort of an analytic type and I just figured out how they do it. And it was interesting that they were pretty much self-taught.
2: David Breckman, whose brother created Monk and who was on Monk for many years on Saturday Night Live before that, David is young, he's 40. He's very young, just a kid and um he he but he wishes he was twenty four again he um he learned from his accounting he just was in love with every aspect of the business and studied everything and um and still and the thing he said and that he tells his students because he's teaching now is expect for your first couple of scripts to be really lousy and be happy about that embrace that because that's you learn much more this is what I would tell the I I don't like the word amateur but this is what I would say to a beginning writer embrace crap embrace it allow it to be bad because that's the way you learn you don't learn from writing something good nobody does that's another one of those myths that's out there. The idea that, and a lot of young writers think, oh, I do one or two drafts and I've done my job. Well, but, but real professionals know that it's 14, 15, 16, 17 drafts, uh, you know, and that, you, and that you'd be concentrating on different things in each draft. But that's the hardest thing I have to do with students is say to them, start, do it again, do it again. You know, there's some good stuff in here. You're not telling the story you think you're telling. Um, and that they get
0: so down on themselves when it doesn't come out perfectly in the first draft, they, and, they don't have talent. And,
2: and there is no perfection ever, and any professional writer will tell you that. That there's, no, it's, It might be great, but you take any great film that you can think of, just think of King's Speech, which I think is arguably one of the best films of the last five years. That started as a play, which he had put away because the queen asked him to. You know that story, right? She had asked him not, she she said not while she was alive. He, he, he was doing a reading at some little theater in London, and the director's mother brought him and said, you have to make this, you have to film this. You know, it's weird the way things happen, and, you know, and he's not a young guy either. That that writer. Um, so, I don't think there are any rules. Again, it's it's you know it's patience. Um, Joyce Carol Oates, who's one of my favorite novelists, said that the difference between an amateur writer and a professional is that she talked about herself. She said that when she starts writing, she this is good advice I think for beginners that it'll take four or five weeks. And if she goes to the desk every day, the book will start to form. But you've got to go every single day and show up, even if it's for two or three hours. And what happens with beginners is they don't—they they give up around week three, and they think it's not going to come. You have to tolerate the the frustration. You have to tolerate the bad writing. To, and this goes back kind of to um, what I get out of this partnership. Um, Peter is very, very good at slinging things up against the wall and and letting it be whatever it is. I He's very fast. And I am... It's like dental surgery for me, the first draft. I would probably rather have a root canal than write a first draft. Um, it's very hard. When he gives me something to look at, it's much easier for me to come in and say, okay, well, this could go here or maybe... I am just, some people just love writing first drafts, and some people hate it. I hate it. I love rewriting. Hate writing. He loves the first draft. He just loves writing it. And he doesn't judge himself. He just throws it out there. That's one of the things I hate most about him. And it's But it's a, it's a gift to have that. And why would I want to be with someone who is like me? You know, he also can put pressure on me. He likes that because he's Jewish, and he likes to sling guilt, so... It works well for both of us.
0: I know a lot of joint
2: locks; so it comes in very handy. He has a he has a belt. He's you're going to be frightened, of Peter. But I, I, I actually think that um, that's really good advice for young writers: is to stay at the desk, just stay there, and, and no matter it's not about how fast you're doing it, it's about staying there. She's absolutely right, Joyce Carol Oates. It's about allowing it to be crap. There,
0: there's a, a, a term. In psychology, called self-efficacy,
2: and whatever the hell that means,
0: it's we define it simply as domain-specific self-confidence, which is
2: equally annoyingly, which is if you believe,
0: see, when Jeffrey sits down to write, he'll stay at the task because he knows if he does it long enough, it's going to become okay. But if somebody doesn't believe in their skills, and they keep going back and saying, "I don't like what's happening here," It's easy to get discouraged and say, I don't know right. it, I can't do it. So this in English... This project doesn't work, so I'm going to start yeah. something
2: else. So here's a good solution for that for beginning writers, and for any writer, is don't be attached to it, and don't go back... I have to keep saying this to students. you got notes. Put them somewhere. Don't go back and rewrite the first 25 pages. Keep going forward. Going back is a trap. Richard Walter talks about this in one of his books. Going back in the middle of a draft is super dangerous. Because then you just keep you're doing what he's saying. You're you're never gonna finish it. It's just always gonna be it's much better to throw it up against the wall, let it be what it is, because then you've got something and you can rewrite it. And I, I mean it's simple and it seems obvious but you'd be surprised how many writers won't do that even seasoned professional when I meet people who say I've been working on a screenplay for 10 years I'm thinking I always think to myself you're not Tolstoy you don't get to you know you're not, you're not writing war and peace it's a <laughs> screenplay <laughs> you should be writing you know, if that's what you're really doing, you should be writing five bad ones the first five years. You know, not one for 20 years. I mean, that's crazy.
1: We hear from a lot of young writers who'd much rather break into television rather than writing for film. So what's the best way for a writer to get started?
2: Um, I I tell all my students that 90% chance they'll be working in television. Um, film is getting just by way of introduction um, you you will see very few people coming out of uh, graduate school for example even though they're older and getting their films made um, they'll get deals they'll get you know especially if they come recommended television is you know as Peter's been saying um, the market is changing and growing there's gonna you know there's so many channels everybody wants to be uh... make you know netflix is making shows google's gonna start making shows i've heard um don't know what will ever happen Um american movie classics changed its whole way of doing it a and e which was all documentaries i know because i wrote a lot of them Uh, um, is now all narrative there's no more documentaries on A&E it's all doc you know it's all so that's the place to go now how to break in well if there were one answer to that it would be easier my experience has been that it's usually four to five years to break in and get any kind of job you can get in the in the industry that puts you as close to a writer's room as you can get I have one student who, after five, almost five years, is now on a on a cable show called Longmere, which is the the biggest hit A and E has ever had. It's it's her, the two showrunners, and I think the novelist who the, the show is based on his novels is in there. You imagine the education she's getting. It's like going to grad school and getting paid for it. And um, no, she's not making as much money as if she were on The Good Wife, but she's going to get her scripts produced and before that she was in the writers room as an assistant on burn notice she worked for Jay Leno on The Tonight Show for two years as an assistant um, and she just did and then all that time all of us were trying to help her get a manager so getting a manager today could be more important than getting an agent because um, a manager works much and a manager if they're really good will find you an agent um, managers in large part have taken the place of what agents used to do which is to get you work agents typically make deals now and and um, I know a couple of very seasoned writers or not even that old who whose agents don't even tell them when a producer liked their script nobody tells them had that experience. charlie peters had that experience where he wrote two scripts for lauren michaels and was probably paid a great deal of money to write them and the only person who called him was his manager oh yeah they really liked it charlie um yeah they may they may or may not make them but they really love them and i'm and sure because he's charlie peters he got paid a lot of money but managers i i think to try to find a manager and the way you do that is Contact just the way you've always done it. You contact everybody you know, and you take any kind of job you can get
1: If a writer does break into television What can they expect and what are they going to need to know to survive as a television writer? I mean is there an unspoken protocol that 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 you say that the 50 rules of writing aren't written. They're not written down
0: um Walter Bennett told us a nice story when he was a uh, a rookie writer in a room, he pitched a joke, and oil painting, and then twenty minutes later, one of the more seasoned writers pitched the same joke, and everybody cracked up. And he said, "Hey, I just pitched that joke twenty minutes ago." The showrunner turned to him and said, "Come on, Walt, don't be like that. It's when you're the, the new guy any place when you're a, rookie,
2: you're a rookie.
1: Yeah. So it's about politics.
2: Oh major league politics and the bigger the show the more the staff the more politics that's why my student Sarah and a couple of the faculty who heard about her getting this break on this A&E show oh no she should be in a big room having to fight for a story and, and my attitude about that is she's learning her craft in a in a relatively calm environment she's gonna have enough of that later let her learn you know she got lucky so that yes most i know this is true on our shows that most of the time on a show like the good wife the rookie writers what we call baby writers don't get a script the first year they don't get or if they do it doesn't necessarily go past the table
0: when when we interviewed david breckman he said he spent a year on snl and said getting something on the air. It says, half the cast comes in with characters they already have, that they write stuff for, and then the guest comes in with certain bits that they do, so the number of new bits that are totally written from scratch, very small number, and everybody's competing for those spots. is very tough.
1: What about non-creative etiquette? What do you mean? How should one conduct themselves? Suppose they do get this, yeah. this... this television job
2: well I have very strong feelings about that okay Um, one the mythology that that you go in and 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 show everybody how smart you are is really stupid Uh, well it ends up showing everybody how arrogant you are I think what people look for is, is 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 for you to prove yourself over time and to listen and to be there to learn most people who go uh, I have another friend Gloria Keller Calderon who actually broke in through her plays and was on How I Met Your Mother for the first five seasons and a lot of other shows right now she's doing Mark Cherry's new show the guy that created Desperate Housewives and she's also teaching for us again she likes to come in she was an LMU graduate and she likes to come back and teach. Um, She said that her first year in a television show, she listened a lot and she opened her mouth only when she had something that she was really certain about. And she really looked to the older writers, to the more experienced writers, to help her. So politically, attaching yourself to people who know more than you do is not only smart politically, but it's also you're going to learn more. You don't learn anything from the other baby writers. They're in the same situation you are.
0: Just like getting along in prison,
2: you know, when you're the new guy. (laughs) Without the other part of it that we won't mention, because this is going to be on YouTube and there are restrictions. But yeah, I mean, I think the the main thing I've learned is the etiquette should be and, 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 you know, be nice to people because that old rule about who you see on the way up is who you're going to meet on the way down. So I don't think anybody ever get, there's a couple of people who are absolute jerks, but for the most part, people are people like they are in any other business. They're going to be on, the showrunner's is going to be under a lot of stress because they do more than just sit in that room. But, um, most of the showrunners I've known are really great people, and and sweet, you know, and good people, and artists. And artists are, you know, they're up and down. But I think you learn more by listening. Never been my gift, but no, I'm <laughs> kidding. But I think I that's think, not
0: true because you you listen to yourself as you speak. That's true. Um, well, we you know we had stories about showrunners that in the in the book that ranged from. People who walked on water to people who used to be submerged way under it, and all the points in between.
1: So
0: there's a bad apple in every bunch. Yeah, but it really colors the flavor of the room. You know, Peter Casey uh, talked about a room he was in where he came to the room late one day and brought his own cornflakes with him, and went to pour milk in there, and the showrunner came in and said, that's just for coffee. He says they were that cheap. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he said he learned, you know, we used to take the cast, uh, the writing room out for dinner if they had to stay late, and, you know, to treat them much nicely, and he got much more out of them.
2: Yeah, the the Charles Brothers, who you mentioned taxi, they used to take everybody to Chasen's, which, you know, the great old, now closed restaurant. They used to take them, you know, for premieres of the show and cast parties, and they treat. Uh, Phil Rosenthal used to have activities that he would do with the writers' room. You know, everybody on the show would go to Disneyland on a weekend, and they would pay for everything. Well, probably the network paid for it. But um, no, I think only two people left Raymond in the all the years it was on, and one came back. So two people left, and they both went to Sex in the City, and one came back.
0: And Sex, de- with- they described like family. Yeah. Yeah. There, there were other rooms where people were saying, "I just hated walking in there." yes it yeah. Just, yeah. 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 Um. But it's interesting the pressure that um, um, one of the writers for Raymond uh, Lou Schneider told us a great story that he was in a room and Lou was also a stand-up and the writer next to him said Man. and he whispered a joke to him and said, "Would you pitch it for me?" Because he didn't think he was a good enough joke teller and Lou was a stand-up. And he wanted to make sure he got his joke in, and he wanted the best presentation of it. I mean, it shows you what some of the pressure is like there sometimes.
2: Mm-hmm. Know your strengths, I think, and work on your weaknesses, is what I, I've i heard, you know, that's what a lot of... I didn't like the room, I have to be honest. I, um, I've only been in a few, because when I was doing it, full-time it was still there was a lot of freelancing and i don't think there's enough freelancing now i think the shows get stale very quickly because the same eight people are writing it you know and that works on hbo and showtime because they don't do more than 12 they do the british model of 12 to 13 shows a year but when you're doing 24 good wives they can all be good you know and I don't know. It's it. Sometimes I think they get stale, and there's a big difference between The Sopranos and Revenge, for example, which you know seems to me a little. I've only, I've only seen two episodes, but it seems a little soapy, you know. Um, so I, I think you know. I, I think we might all be better off if there were more freelancing. But I didn't like the room. I I was never comfortable in it. My partner was great in it again because she was an actress and she was very good doing that stuff I couldn't wait to get out of there and write something which by the way nobody in a writer's room ever really wants to do they would much rather sit there and talk about sports and and who they are dating and, and, and that is about half of what goes on in a writers room I would say more than half probably and a lot of eating
1: so it sounds like you have to be really good in social setting
2: yes yes or be with a partner who's really good um, if I were doing it now at my advanced age I would probably enjoy it more I just didn't I didn't like the judgment constant judgment um, you've got to be willing to be and I never had those experiences where it was like Raymond where people were really respected or you know like Cheers or Frazier where people were. you know one of the things that Lou Schneider told us in uh, Show Me the Funny I just thought I'd mention the name of the book because anybody wants to buy it um uh, um is that a lot of what's wrong with television is that people get through on false credits so that you hire somebody who has credits that they really didn't earn they are not their credits which i think is fascinating and it explains a lot of what i've seen over the 25 years that i've been around it you know it's like that is really scary that they could get hired on something and then of course they can't deliver you know um there's a thing in movies uh called a discretionary fund that when an actor has had a number of hits uh like um Emilio Estevez uh this is a great story Emilio Estevez uh, when when the Mighty Duck movies were doing so well, the studio gave him a discretionary fund, which is really just saying here, develop some properties. We may or may not make them, and I don't even know if they're doing that with anybody but the really big stars now. And he developed a, he developed a script which sold on the pitch, which was a a fish comes up on land. This is all these two guys said: a fish comes up on land. And, has to, and and becomes half human and ha- has to interact with human beings and figure out how to get back in the water. And they bought it. And, of course, they never made it. So there's a lot of... I don't know, this is really far from the writer's room. I, You might have noticed I have ADD, but that's okay. You know, we've all got our crosses to bear. <laughs> Yours today is mine. It's, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, again, it's like a lot of what gets by in Hollywood is based on an idea. And you could be great at pitching, by the way, but if you can't, uh... If you can't write, sooner or later someone's going to figure that out. You know? So you might think about bringing a producer along, uh... who can help you not only pitch it, but develop it into a good script. Because Peter's got a very close friend who is a great producer and a manager, who I think has made scripts better by being in that partnership and that. So, I don't know. I'm wandering a bit. I'm sorry, Karen, I wander.
1: I think some people, you know, even though they might be very creative in, in large groups, I think sometimes they can have problems. And I think yeah. that makes them seem one way, but they're really not. It's just yeah. that social anxiety or whatever it is. Well,
0: when we interviewed Michael Elias, he, rooms were just starting to be in vogue now in sitcoms. He, he and his partner created Head of the Class, that was probably back in the 70s. And he said, that's not writing, and what comes out of there doesn't sound like one person's voice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he had a lot of problem with it.
1: Yeah, I don't think I would do well in a room.
0: You're doing fine here.
1: Well, yeah, but I'm good in small groups. So I'm not good in...
0: Well,
2: it's a room. Yeah, and, it's... and Alan Ball, you know, people like Alan Ball and Aaron Sorkin, they have very small rooms, mm-hmm. and they'll tell you right up front. Aaron Sorkin tells his staff, I'm going to listen to all your ideas, we're going to spitball." ball but I'm going to write the scripts.
0: Hmm.
2: That's how he gets that voice.
1: Do you think that someone who's had high expectations placed on them by family or a peer group actually suffers creatively more than possibly a kid from a poor background that's had no expectations placed on them and they're free to do whatever they want? Hmm.
0: I, I can give you a more generic answer to that by telling you about a classic psychological experiment. Oh, she likes psychology. This is a a fellow named Murray, a very big psychologist in the 50s. This is a classic study at Harvard. Took a bunch of kids and gave them a battery of personality tests that determined whether they were secure or insecure. Then they gave them some darts and said, throw the darts at this target and you could stand very close, a moderate distance away or very far, and you wagered, and the amount of money you won was commensurate with the distance. So if you were very close, you wouldn't win much money because it was so easy. If you were very far away, you'd win a lot of money because it was so hard. Now this gets turned around to you. Where do you think the secure and the insecure people chose to stay?
1: Within their comfort zones.
0: Give me specifics. Where did the uh, secure people stand?
1: Probably farther from the target.
0: And the insecure people? Closer to it. Okay. Totally wrong. <laughs> Usually people don't get this. Totally wrong. You get the distinction. The secure people stood in the middle, where they took a moderate risk for a moderate reward. The insecure people were bimodally split. Half stood very close. We understand that. You now somebody will work at an insurance company for $2,300 a month, They're never going to hit a home run, but there's going to be food on the table. But why would insecure people stand very, very far away?
1: Risk the possibility that it could pay
0: off? Look at the flip side. If it doesn't, they've cushioned their fall. If you take a moderate risk and you fail, you're just not very good. But if you're way out here, well, yeah, I didn't sell the screenplay, but hey, you know, I'm out there trying and it's hard to sell the screenplay. You, you cushion your fall. So it's there's something very safe about taking a very great risk with your life.
1: Interesting.
0: Because you're not a failure if you miss in the same way that if you take a moderate size, a realistic risk.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, that's interesting.
2: I also I, I would add a corollary to this, and that is that what I've noticed... You're going to dispute Henry Murray? No, I'm going to talk about something that comes <laughs> off that, about... You don't
0: screw with Murray. Uh,
2: <laughs> about what is success what is failure and uh, maybe this just comes from now Like I've only been he's been teaching for a long time I've only been teaching like 11 years but um yeah I wonder if you know just you, you know there's a lot of very successful people who are miserable human beings does that make them successful you know so they've had success they've taken risks they're not happy people but I, I, my feeling about success is: Are you doing something? Maybe you have to be a little older to sort of feel this. But are you doing something that you get up in the morning and look forward to doing? And 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 are you contributing something? Because I think we're living in a time. Hopefully, we'll come out of it soon. I think maybe some recent events will hopefully start to change this. But this this me thing about, it. it's my, I, we had this house guest, i give you, this is a perfect example, and it was 12-12-12, and my wife and my daughter and this house guest from Australia, she, they were all wishing, cause, and it was right after the horrible thing that happened in Connecticut, or right before, no, I guess it was, what, I forget what date that was, but, and this girl said, well, I hope I win an Oscar this year. And I and, and I'm thinking to myself, that's a very young person's wish. That is that is a very self-centered view of life, and that is a view of success. You could get that Oscar and never work again. That happened to James, the great James Coburn, couldn't get roles after his Oscar. And you know how long his career was. And he had a struggle. I think he did work, but so I just wonder. I I haven't come to a conclusion about it, but. What I do tell my students is, making a lot of money isn't necessarily going to make you happy. You know, I've seen a lot of people who make a lot of money and are miserable human beings and don't help other people. Look at Matt Damon. Look what a great guy Matt Damon is. I was just watching a thing on him this morning. He's taking his life, which has been blessed, and he's passing it on. George Clooney, another great guy right Sandra Bullock these are great people and they know how blessed they are that's the thing is i think you can't know in your 20s you can't know how blessed you are because you don't see it because all you see is what's ahead of you and what you haven't done
1: or who's getting right. by faster than you something like
2: that yeah i think when once you hit your mid 30s it becomes less about that and what's going to make me happy what's going to make me want to get up in the morning sure I mean, what you guys are doing, I think, is, and I have nothing I need from you except an interview at some point, (laughs) but, I mean, I think that, you know, you, you seem like fulfilled people. You don't seem like you're, I don't know, I know a lot of people in their 40s who are unhappy, you know.
1: Yeah, I think where, and maybe we'll edit some of this out, and where this is my question's going, is, you know, mm-hmm. I've known a lot of very wealthy, people, kids from very wealthy homes, and I grew up very yeah. poor, and I saw yeah. that there was great expectation placed on huh. them. That's and, funny. And, and I think that they were held back creatively in some sense, because they were, maybe not in Hollywood. I mean, the
2: rich kids were held back.
1: A little bit, because maybe... The, they re- the parents really wanted them to go to great mm. places, great schools, and become the pharmacist and do these different things. Mm. And again, maybe not in Hollywood, I think Hollywood's a different animal. Whereas with the poor kids, ah, eh, you're lucky he's going to get a job. And well, so they had mm-hmm. more creative freedom, and some of them became musicians or different things, and they actually made a sustainable living off of it.
2: Well, so I, 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 I grew up around a lot of wealthy people, mm-hmm. not show business wealthy. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And... I think that can be a burden, too. I mean, suppose you have a trust fund. Sure. And you know you don't have to work. I mean, I I think, uh, you know, I I come back to Steven Spielberg. I think if Steven Spielberg had been born with five trillion dollars, he still would have done what he's done because it's his need to make movies. He's had that since he was a little boy. Right. But I, 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 I've been close to people whose lives were ruined by having money. You know, back, mm-hmm. I was talking to an accountant.
0: Accountants, come up a right. Um <laughs> Who was telling me that right around the time of the, toward the end of the dot-com boom, back in the 90s, that he had a bunch of clients who were average, middle-aged couples, who all of a sudden were part of this company now? They have thirty-eight million dollars and two kids, and they said, "How am I going to get my kid to want to study algebra in high school when he knows he's going to get fourteen million dollars in the trust fund?" Like what kind? Of... And they worked out all these weird incentives for their kids. You know, oh, if nice. you get this kind of grade point average, you get this. If you graduate from this school, you get this. If you get this kind, of... and literally they were trying to build incentives in because they felt. It would be crippling to know that
2: no matter what you do, you're covered. See, I grew up having absolutely no expectations from my parents. My dad was out here. I was raised by my pretty much by my stepfather and my mother who had issues, mental health issues. And you could edit this out if you want to. I'm sure it's boring as hell. But the part that's interesting is I think sometimes rich kids or kids who have... You know who who are okay financially can't their parents don't or their grandparents or whomever they don't have any expectations either. I, I
0: don't think there are rules. There are no. I mean, again, it's
2: like every every case is individual. Right. I I can tell you
0: with people having sat in that chair that all different backgrounds. There's no. There's
1: no
2: rules. In Karen's chair. Or my chair. Your chair.
0: You
1: talk about how common it is, I guess, for comedy to come from tragedy, and you used one example of, was it Elliot, Elliot uh, Schoenman? Yeah. Who reenacted, uh, he and his sister reenacted the ride, that cab ride, mm-hmm. to his father's suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, so, how common is this, and why do we use humor to cover up for pain?
0: Okay, well, it's two different questions. Um, um, we have to bring in the F word, um, Freud oh. um, <laughs> wrote about three different forms of humor. One of which was using humor to deal with painful emotions. And it's basically a coping mechanism. We actually did some research years ago where we looked at the relationship of death and humor. I, I'm not part of the we. Hmm? I wasn't part of that. A colleague and I. Oh, there you go. That's better. A real colleague. Yeah. A psychologist, a scholar. Yeah. You anyway, uh, know, she was a, a death and dying expert. And we did this study where we collected a bunch of death jokes and then non-death jokes. And we, we gave them to a bunch of nurses who work around death in ICU wards and CCU wards and asked them to rate the jokes on how funny they were. And then we... Ask their supervisors how well they cope with the stress of one of their patients dying. And uh, what we found was that the ones who were better at coping were more able to see the, the humor in these jokes than people who weren't. You know, in there are people who are really good in stressful situations of being able to see the humorous side of something. Mm-hmm. And it's a way to deal with things to not be so terrible. Um, There was a a great story that, matter of fact, that Elliot Shulman told us about Home Improvement, that they came up with an idea for a show about cancer. And the network said, absolutely not. There's no way we're going to have a... So they asked, uh, Tim, go in and fight for this. We want to do this show. And so, reluctantly, the network agreed and it got the highest ratings of any show that they had that season. Then the network came back to the writers and said, could you write us a few more cancer episodes? <laughs> Do
1: you have any commentary?
2: About why the humor is often the flip, the, drop, you know, the that it comes from such a dark place.
1: Right, a lot of co- comedians actually come from... Well, home.
2: I think most, most, com- most stand-ups are pretty unhappy people um i think that the reason for me anyway this is just my observation is that is that i could take hamlet anybody could take hamlet and flip it and do it as a as a comedy would it be any good no but i could do it i mean they're very close really on the scale and comedy is much harder to write because it's much because unless it's forced comedy is much harder to write it's much harder to be funny, you know, not, not to try to be funny, but to be funny. I just think, I think that most things, my favorite kind of, my favorite kind of writing is, um, I'm going to mention a writer who is k- kind of out of favor, but he will come back as Peter DeVries, who, um, was a novelist. A lot of films were made from his books and he did like dark and light together. And that's my favorite kind of writing. I don't. I don't like what in the business is called balls-out comedy very much. I think it's kind of an example of balls-out comedy would be some of Jud, Judd Apatow's early stuff. I, I like the you kind You were of, a big Porky's fan. That wasn't Judd. That was... I know that. That was, you know, real crap, that movie. Um, He takes everything so seriously. I like like a kind of comedy that's out of fashion now, which is social comedy. That if you look at the films of the 30s, 40s, into the early 50s, even even Billy Wilder's comedies in the 60s, um, where, you know, like The Apartment, which is a comedy, but has great drama in it, you know, or... um, uh, the, the married couples divorce like the awful truth or uh, my favorite wife or any which you know are all dark situations but made light of. I think that takes real skill. we don't we don't have that anymore. The closest we got to it in the last couple of years was Bridesmaids, which I think is a terrific movie. She is really a gifted writer. So
0: Jeff was all over
2: that movie. You know, he executive produced it, right. But it's her script with one other person. And it's dark. It has great darkness in it. And so does this. This is 40. It, I like social comedy. I like comedy about people. I, I love The Hangover, the first one. The second one was an embarrassment. Now they're going to make a third. But the first one, you know, the story, the history of that movie is that the studio wanted it to be 25 year olds they wanted to change the script they wanted to make it 25 year olds and they wanted just a weekend in Vegas movie and the writers kept saying and the producers but the point is they're about to be 40 and this is their last hurrah it's not gonna work you know and, they, and, and it's a, I think it's a wonderful film, and it has something to say about friendship. And about I just don't like comedies, I guess, that have absolutely nothing to say. Arthur is my favorite, the original Arthur, not the remake. Arthur is my favorite comedy of the last 25 years, 30 years. It's more like an old school comedy. Boy, I'm long-winded today. Sorry about that. You got, me, you got me on a tear when you got me on things. I just wish we had more varieties of films than we do. I think that's why I like documentary, because you see varieties of... Doc- that The one you just mentioned has nothing in common with the, the film, that those, those two people that made the boxing movie and the one about the big studio executive, the kid stays in the picture. But you get that variety where you don't get in comedy anymore.
1: The traits I've seen in most successful people that I've worked for, whatever industry it might be, uh, often are that they're extremely detail-oriented and they're control freaks. Hmm. Do you feel that success only follows people who are workaholics and micromanagers?
2: I couldn't begin to answer that. Well... You could.
0: An old friend of mine, who was the, the dean of our school of management years ago, said something to me. It was one of those statements that you first hear it and you say, that's kind of corny, and then you think about it and say, wow, that's really deep. He uh, said, successful people are people who know how to work when it's hard. And, you know, if I said, hey, uh, why don't you guys come over this weekend, we'll paint the room, I'll get you all a pizza and beer. Uh, that's like grungy, awful work, but it's not hard. You just do this a lot. But when you're working on a math problem and you can't solve it, and it makes your head hurt and you want to give up, or you can't figure out how to figure out, fix Act 2, and you just say, oh, the hell with it. Successful people are people who will hang in and solve it as long as it takes. And it's a rare quality in people to do something when they feel like maybe it's not going to succeed. It probably won't. It's really difficult. It's making my head hurt. And still be able to stick
2: to it under those conditions. I couldn't improve that if I tried. That was great. How about one for me? Just for the hell of it? <laughs> Something simple, back to what we talked about earlier about the Joyce Carroll out it it, it, it it does speak to why she's written so many books. It's that you know because people always say to writers, is, is it easy for you to write? Most writers will say no. It's the ability to sit there or to come back to it. I don't think it's always like, you know, I mean, there are days when just nothing's gonna come no matter what you do, but you have to be willing to come back. You know? And I think that's where a lot of people if you're really a writer, if you're really an artist, if you if you if you're not doing it just because money's on the other end, you're gonna come back to it.
0: I mean, it's interesting when, when people come to see me when they have blocks, writer's blocks, and to see the different variations. I remember I talked to one writer who said, I don't get writer's block. When I'm writing a script and I get boxed in, I take the last two pages I've written, whatever they are, and I throw them away. Because no matter how good I think they might be, they're what got me into the corner. So I go back from the place where I wasn't boxed in. I keep going from there.
2: I like the Neil Simon advice about writer's block which I keep, I have a bunch of cards that I keep above my desk to remind me that I'm not alone Um, and um, Neil Simon said he doesn't have writer's block, he has writer's drivel he just writes crap until something good comes up that's hard to do and that goes back to what Peter's saying about you know people who just stay there he doesn't expect everything to be good he just wants to get something out.
0: Well, I'll tell you something interesting.
2: I well, we'll decide I that. I shouldn't start that way. Yeah. I'll tell you something. I'll tell you something. Um, now, what if it's really boring and awful?
0: Well, it will be to you until I explain it afterwards.
2: Um, You'll have to draw a diagram.
0: I, I, had a, I had a patient come in one day, and he said, um, I've got terrible work habits, and my files are in a total mess and it's really starting to affect my business." I went to, Well, why don't you organize them? He said, I don't have the time. I said, How long do you think it'll take? He said, At least 40 man hours. I just, I don't know where I could get the time. I said, Do me a favor. Try and experiment this week. Spend 15 minutes a day organizing your files. Tell me how you do. He says, That's not worth my time. I won't make a dent. I said, Humor me just so you can come back and say, I told you so. So he comes back next week and says, my files are done. He said, how long did it take you? He said, about three and a half hours. Um, one of the things that happens is when you're doing a task that's very effortful, that's very difficult, you tend to make an assessment of it. And it's a huge, you make it into a huge obstacle. And when you actually get down to doing it, rarely is bad. But you feel stupid saying, my files are in terrible shape, but I don't have the three and a half hours to fix them. But 40 is a good enough number to avoid. And he discovered by spending a little time each day, hey, it's actually getting done. So, the t- so what Jeffrey's saying, as much as it hurts me to agree with him, <laughs> is it's that the tenacity of staying with it. And, and not just... It, it's interesting to me because when I study people with time management problems, some people have trouble getting started and once they begin they're okay. Other people can get started easily but they can't stay. But again, if you make a commitment for even a short amount of time, mm. 15 minutes, half an hour, every day, but I mean I, I tell people quite often, even if you have to be staring at the clock, mm. Saying, okay, eight and a half more minutes, sit there, stare at the clock. At least you're down there, somewhat involved. Eventually some little breakthroughs happen, something comes out of it. But it's so easy to to go back and say, gee, the last two and a half weeks I haven't even looked at that script. Yeah, and guess what? (laughs) Never going to finish it.
1: So uh, do you think a lot of people suffer from low frustration tolerance,
0: and they absolutely Ooh, LFT major epidemic in this yeah, country.
2: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, and 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 smartphones and all the things that they come with are not helping. It in my in my observation. Uh,
0: I tell you a great thing. A friend of mine studies technology and learning, and he's a professor at the university, and he says to his students every 15 minutes, I'll give you a one-minute phone break. Hmm. I want your phones away, I want the sound turned off, and you can text and answer messages every 15 minutes, I'll give you a minute. And he says he gets great focus and concentration from his students. He said, before I did that, all they were thinking about was this vibrating in my pocket, and what is it? And there were studies that show mm-hmm. that kids have trouble being away from their phones for a certain length of time. Mm. But if you give them a long enough time to get something done, but short enough so they know they can get to it if it's important...
2: That's a good idea. ...they kind of come I was at a restaurant in uh, in Italy five years ago in, uh, in Siena. There was a restaurant that our friends wanted... To, we were traveling with them and they wanted to go to. And... Um, it was in a cave, in a real cave. And they had done this you know something could never happen in this country happened at the door you put your cell phone down you put your name on the back of it and you put it in a basket it was a cell phone free restaurant and it was the most wonderful dining experience i've ever had no there's kids. nothing no more, kids <laughs> there's nothing more our kids more no, with
0: nobody us. nobody under 30 could, could be in the room
2: but You know, we're so used to now someone picking up a cell phone at a table next to us. Uh, I don't bring my cell phone mostly when I go to dinner. I don't want to be bothered. But you do when you go to lunch. That's true, but so do you. That's different. It's different. So? I
0: need to, I'm important.